Hello, and welcome to Eyes on Success, a weekly program of information on the ever-changing world of accessibility. Now here are the hosts of this program, Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy. Hello, I'm Nancy. And I'm Pete. In several previous episodes of Eyes on Success, we talked about how guide dogs are raised and how they're trained to work with their owners. In this episode, we'll talk about if a guide dog is right for you, and if you decide that you want one, how to prepare. We'll speak with Mark Gillard of Guide Dogs for the Blind, who addresses these questions. But first for our tip of the week. This week's tip comes from Mark Gillard. Never ever as a blind or visually impaired person who's got a guide dog objective, never let your long cane skills deteriorate because you're going to end up needing it somewhere down the track. So always try and keep it up. Maybe go for an occasional walk with the cane, even though it might not be a popular idea for many people who want a guide dog, but I assure you it would be well worth it. So keep your cane skills up is my tip. Interesting you should mention that. I was wondering whether having a guide dog would obviate the need for using your cane or whether that was discouraged, encouraged or what. But I guess you just gave the answer. Well, it's encouraged, and we also encourage people to bring a collapsible cane out with them on every walk they do with their dog, because there might be uh, situations that they can drop the harness, have the leash in their hand, of course, and maybe heal the dog. Maybe it's um, safer to do that. It could be following a shoreline along a a street uh, where there's no sidewalk. Mm-hmm. Uh, could be to explore an area, find a signal pole button they're not sure about. So it can be used as an orientation aid. So, yeah, we really encourage the cane, no question about it. You know, I've learned to do that even walking around with Nancy. I mean, in general, she guides me very well. I don't have need for my cane when I'm with her, which I am most of the day. But I've started taking it just as a backup. And we actually had an incident about a month or two ago where we each tripped and got a little bloodied up and some people came to our assistance and I was happy to have my cane just so I could get around independently and not have to depend on someone else when, you know, Nancy was not capable of guiding me like she normally does. Yeah, I was just sitting on the ground watching all the blood. (laughs) Oh, well, I'm sorry you had to go through that, but I'm glad, Peter, you you had that cane. There's, there's There's a great example And, you know, historically, I have to say, my understanding of U.S. guide dog programs, and GDB was was in this, is people used to be told when they came to campus, okay, fold up that cane and put it away. It's a very different mentality now that we actually, you know, as I said, we describe to people how valuable it is and don't put it away. Use it as much as you like. So it's completely flipped. Let's start by meeting Mark and learning how he ended up as a guide dog instructor. My name is Mark Gillard, and I am the Orientation and Mobility Services Manager at Guide Dogs for the Blind. And where is that located? We have two campuses, uh, both on the West Coast. Our headquarters is in San Rafael, California, which is around 21 miles north of San Francisco. And our second campus is in a place named Boring, Oregon, and it's just outside Portland. Oh. Now, you don't sound like you grew up in California. 
No, that's right. I actually grew up in Melbourne, Australia. So how did you come to be associated with this organization? Back in Australia, when I did my training as a guide dog instructor, um, I was still a fairly young man when I came out of my apprenticeship. So I wanted to keep this career going, but travel at the same time. So I made some inquiries uh, at various organizations, including the UK, East Coast US, and finally the West Coast. And I went for a whole bunch of visits to those organizations. And at the time, uh, Guide Dogs for the Blind was my last stop on the way back to Australia. And because I have an orientation and mobility certification, as well as a guide dog mobility qualification, they were very interested at the time to have someone join them that had an O&M background. So lucky for me, I received a job offer. And uh, before too long, I found myself over in California working as a field service manager. So that's uh, providing services to graduate teams out in the field. So that's how it all began. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success. This week's focus topic is about the services provided by Guide Dogs for the Blind, in particular, the programs they have for helping people to prepare for their first guide dog. Maybe we can start out by you giving us an overview of what Guide Dogs for the Blind does, what their mission is. Guide Dogs for the Blind, or GDB as we're also known, our mission is to empower lives by creating exceptional partnerships between people, dogs, and communities. Our primary service, of course, is providing trained guide dogs to blind and visually impaired people, and we do that throughout the United States and Canada. Roughly how many guide dogs do you provide a year? Well, we're actually uh, the country's largest provider. We, we train around 300 teams per year, and we have around 2,200 plus active guide dog teams operating. Wow. Where do the dogs come from? All the dogs are bred uh, by us. We have our own breeding program and they are whelped, as we say, at the California campus. From there, they go out to the, the puppy raising homes. And what does whelp mean? Yeah, whelping is kind of the doggy name for giving birth. So yeah, we use that word whelp to describe a dog coming into the world. So we've done several previous episodes on Eyes on Success about how the guide dogs are trained and what happens when the person who's going to own the guide dog comes in and how they get trained together and how that all works. But we thought we'd start out by asking you, who is a good candidate for a guide dog? What would you advise people in terms of whether to get a guide dog, use a cane, etc.? Right. Well, I think... The most important thing in terms of someone's candidacy is their motivation in terms of what they're actually wanting out of a guide dog. So the first and a primary reason that the dogs are bred and trained is for independent mobility. So what does that mean? Well, it means that someone must be wanting to use a dog to go to purposeful destinations. And 
from there, the motivations that sort of come next, they're, they're very, very important, but companionship is hugely important, but it shouldn't be the primary motivator. And the reason for that is someone said to me, you know, I would really like the guide dog as a companion. And I don't hear anything else in terms of them wanting to travel independently. Then I'm thinking maybe a guide dog's not the right dog for them. Maybe they would like an emotional support dog or even a pet can offer really great companionship. So motivation firstly for the right reasons. And then from there, as we'll talk about, there's a whole host of things someone needs to bring to the table to start off with the dog. And what would some of those things be? And I mentioned purposeful destinations. Well, that brings up things such as physical fitness, a minimum amount of ability to get a suitably matched dog out for at least, I would say daily work is ideal, but at Guide Dogs, we actually use about four times a week would be the minimum amount of activity. So you're talking physical ability and then those independent travel skills that lend themselves to working with a guide dog. And I would describe them as like being a navigator where someone already needs to know where they're going on those routes at home or to work or wherever to start the dog off the right way. So they effectively are the navigator of the team. And that's where orientation mobility comes in. So I want to backtrack a little bit. You talked about purposeful destinations as a primary consideration. And so people would immediately think of get me to my job. But work isn't the only legitimate place you might want to go. Can you talk about, you know, what are considered purposeful destinations? Absolutely. There's no doubt that a dog likes to know that it has a purpose. So yes, going places that a person has a reason to go to, such as, you know, coffee shop or a friend's house or around college to a lecture hall, that's very important. But within that, you can have things such as just going for a walk, exercise, for example, for someone just say they have diabetes and they need to walk around, even around a block or around a fitness track just to keep their blood glucose levels managed that would be a purposeful route you might also have a primary route so just say we go to a bus stop and we get on that bus and then we we go for a little journey and we get off and then from there we have a range of things that can happen we could go to the coffee shop or we could go to a library we could go to wherever that kind of branches off a primary route the bottom line is that a dog to feel fulfilled in its role and fulfilled in its life as a working dog needs to have amongst the routine of the person places that are meaningful. And that means that, you know, basically that harness goes on and it's time for work and the dog knows that, okay, I'm going somewhere. And when I get to the end, it's actually going to be very pleasurable and very meaningful. And that gives the dog purpose. And these dogs take their jobs very seriously. They certainly do. I mean, it all begins, you know, in the puppy raising home and and where they are socialized. They have that jacket on, guide dogs for the blind, and, and they learn to associate that each time they go out, they have that jacket on, 
that, you know, they're going to go places and there are expectations of behavior. Yeah, you mentioned that, you know, the primary function of these dogs is not for companionship, but when they're out there with their masters, they're doing a job. And I suppose you can sort of destroy their training pretty quickly if you don't uh, realize that fact. That's right. You know, when that harness goes on, it's amazing. There's a very strong association from the dog to the harness. And, and we can see that actually in reverse. When we take the harness off after the dog's finished working, the dog kind of shakes its coat and might sort of spin around and is really happy and not happy because it's finished work, but it knows that the association of having to concentrate um, basically comply to commands and expected behaviors, that responsibility is is finished. So it can kind of relax a little bit and just be a normal dog. So you can enjoy the dog as a companion once the harness is off and kind of it's the end of the workday. Absolutely. When that harness is off, dogs need to be dogs and they need to have uh, playtime and lots of interaction. And, you know, they become a regular kind of family dog if they're in that circumstance. But the relationship when they're working is very special too. I mean, I think it's one of the closest, if not the closest, human-animal connection there can be or there is. And we've heard that from a number of people who have guide dogs. So the people, on the other hand, are not bred and trained from infancy to work as a partnership with a dog. What kind of considerations do you have for people to be a good candidate to work with a dog? Yes. So at GDB, we have eligibility criteria that there needs to be at least three of those purposeful routes in place before the person gets a dog. And the reason for that is to provide a minimum level of activity for the dog's physical and emotional health and to keep the dog's training up. If the dog doesn't have opportunities to work, like any learned behavior, which guide work is to the dog, it can deteriorate over time if the dog doesn't get to practice. So on top of that, I mentioned that there's the physical aspects of the handler being able to get out for a minimal amount of walking to be able to affect those routes. And then there are things in terms of pers a person needing to be legally blind in order to qualify. So that's uh, acuity 2200 or less with best correction and visual fields, which is less than 20 degrees with best correction. So those things are important because if a person has, as we kind of say, too much vision, then it can interfere with the dog's ability to work. A person can find it difficult to follow the dog and let the dog lead and let the dog make decisions to make directional changes like going around obstacles, for example. So that legal blindness uh, part is a very functional assessment that we do to make sure a person can indeed follow a dog. Uh, other things a person needs to have, we needed to have a stable home environment. So what that means, it relates to the dog being a very emotional creature. They are very in tune with their emotional environment, which could include other people in the household, so family, could be roommates, and it could be other pets as well. So that environment needs to be welcoming to the dog. Everyone needs to be on board with the dog coming into that circumstance. If that's not in place, the dogs can pick up that emotional state and that can affect their behavior. 
So we need to be really, really careful before we place a dog to make sure that environment's emotionally welcoming. And on top of that, the home environment needs to be safe and hygienic. Do you do home visits to make sure that the environment is okay? Yes, we do. It's a very important part of our program. Every first-time applicant that applies for a guide dog gets a home interview by a qualified guide dog instructor. And that interview uh, lasts about three to four hours. And we are assessing uh, not only the home environment, we're assessing someone's independent travel skills. And we do a whole lot of uh, discussions. So two-way exchanges of information, finding out what someone you know, wants out of a guide dog experience. Hopefully their family can be present as well. Uh, and we actually go out and watch them using what's mostly their cane, traveling those one route actually that we'd like them to demonstrate their independent travel. So we do that O&M assessment. And then after they reach a destination on that sort of outward route, if you like, we then have them put the cane away and then we'll bring out a harness and we call the next phase a Juno walk. So Juno is the imaginary name for a dog where the instructor plays the part of the dog holding the harness and we teach someone the basic footwork, hand signals, body positions and verbal commands that they need to use when they're working a dog. And then we see if they can navigate on the reverse route back to the starting point where they took off with their cane, just to see if they can make the transition between cane travel and guide dog travel, which is very, very different. So for people who are considering getting their first guide dog, I understand that you have special programs where you help people prepare for their first guide dog. Can you talk about what's involved in that? Sure. A little bit of background to our O&M Immersion Program, which is the name of our new program, there is a significant shortage of orientation and mobility professionals that are available to provide services throughout the United States and Canada. What's happening with this shortage, it's affecting people's ability to acquire those base O&M skills and the guide dog specific O&M skills they need to qualify for guide dog programs around the country. So in order for us to kind of help out and get people those skills and help them qualify for our program, because fundamental O&M skills are one of our criteria. And the reason is because good skills contribute to a greater chance of long-term success with a guide dog. So it's very important the person gets those skills. So back in uh, 2016, we created a pilot program called the Orientation Mobility Immersion, where we partnered with a local agency that already provides O&M services, and it's called the San Francisco Lighthouse for the Blind and Visually Impaired. So we decided, what if we could partner with an agency and train some of their O&M specialists to work specifically with people who had a guide dog mobility objective. And what if we could have them train the person with those specific skills that they need to learn relative to guide dog travel, which is a little different to their normal long cane uh, skills that these O&Ms are trained to do. So we put together a uh, training course 
for an initial group of O&M specialists where it concentrated on, as I said, those O&M skills such as auditory listening skills, time distance estimation skills, intersection analysis and street crossing skills, how to walk a straight line, which is very important with a dog. And on top of that, we really train these O&Ms up in how to um, give Juno, but very much in the way that a guide dog instructor gives Juno. So we then had them on top of training the basic exercise, learn to simulate possible guide work errors. So a person could learn detection and recovery strategies such as veering in the block, veering at a street crossing, rounding a corner unintentionally, overshooting a down curb unintentionally. So this Juno context is where we're moving those base O&M skills that I mentioned into the guide dog context. So that was a three-day training for the O&Ms. And the course itself for the client or the student at the lighthouse runs for seven days. And then they need to graduate from that program or be able to show that they have an equivalent amount of O&M skills in order to enter into your program with the dog. So here's the good thing. Our program is it's mutually exclusive of the admissions process. Why that's important is even though someone might come in and they present with initial guide dog mobility objective, which most people do, they need to be strongly motivated towards the guide dog. People that have gone through this program, not all of them have progressed through to a dog by their own choice. And this program's also open to experienced guide dog users. And that's another group. We're finding that in our graduate population of 2,200 plus, a large amount of people now are experiencing deterioration in their residual vision over the journey with a particular guide dog. So those people might need some assistance going from visual travel skills where they had some some useful vision when they first started and they haven't ever had to rely upon non-visual travel strategies such as the ones I identified particularly using hearing so the reason I'm mentioning that group is they need some assistance to re-qualify for a successor dog and we've had people even retrains go through this immersion program and be quite happy with the actual long cane and O&M skills and increased confidence they have, and they haven't actually come back to us for a dog as yet, maybe ever, and that's okay. Well, I just wanted to ask, was there anything that we missed that you wanted to talk about? Yeah, there, there is a really special day in the O&M immersion I'll talk about quickly, and, and so it starts on a Sunday, and on the Thursday... People have had the Juno experience and we then invite them to come to the Guide Dogs for the Blind campus in San Rafael. We meet them downtown in the normal class training area, so where people are typically learning to use dogs when they come in. We do a Juno route on a particular route that suits each person. And then the highlight, I think, of the week is that a first-timer gets to then, after Juno, get matched to a dog in training and work that dog around that same route. They're obviously not independent. We've got an instructor with them, but it's extremely rewarding where people can then see, oh, wow, this is how these O&M skills fit in with using a guide dog. And they have a really great experience understanding what a guide dog is all about. 
and it's just very much life-changing. If you imagine that's the first time a, a blind or visually impaired person is going to work a guide dog, and it really sets them up that, okay, I know what this is about now. And one of the things we recommend is they go home after the immersion and they consolidate back in their home area for around three months so that really that guide dog walk gives them that motivator to really push on at home, implement those O&M skills with the cane, and then apply after that. So it's a great incentive and a really great day. What a great program. That sounds very useful and even fun. It is, yeah. Thank you. Now for this week's final item, how to get more information about Guide Dogs for the Blind and the programs Mark just talked about, how to reach the organization, and how to reach him directly. So if people would like to find out more about the organization and perhaps get a guide dog or find out if they should even think about getting one, where would you send them? Okay, we have a really, really great website, and the address is guidedogs.com. So that's plural, guidedogs.com. And I want to stress that it's fully accessible. And there's information there about applying for a dog. You can actually um, avail yourselves of a lot of information about living and working with a dog. And then you can apply, actually, online if you would like to or you can make a phone call to our admissions department as well. But then there's also information about the program that I just discussed, the O&M Immersion, and there is an application process for that as well. On the top of the screen, there is a resources uh, option, and there is a drop-down box under that, and then there is a section called Information for O&M Professionals. If you go to that, you can read all about O&M, but down the bottom, there's also videos that we have, and there's a couple of Juno videos that you could uh, also listen to, and then there's a very uh, important video called Developing Travel Skills for Guide Dog Mobility, and that's really our program in video form. And do you have a phone number or email for people who want to ask questions directly? Sure. So we have a toll-free 800 number. That's 800-295-4050. And that actually takes you through to our support center. And in terms of uh, emailing, I'm happy to give my email address out. Uh, so it's M for Mark Gillard, G-I-L-L-A-R-D, at guidedogs.com. And do you have a social media presence? We do. On the, on the website, we have, uh, we have Facebook, we have Twitter, um, and that is actually uh, monitored by designated staff person. And uh, so absolutely, we have a whole host of stuff there, and it's also uh, on the web page. And as usual, you'll find all of that information in the show notes associated with this episode at www.eyesonsuccess.net. That's it for show number 1842. Next week on Eyes on Success, we'll be starting a three-show series about astronomy. We'll do one show with Greg Salveson and Matt Russo talking about sonification of astronomical data. 
another with Kim Arcand about representing in tactile format astronomical information, and then a discussion with an actively employed blind astronomer, Morgan Renberg. If you have any questions regarding something you've heard about on the show or you'd like to share an idea for a future show, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net or call us at 585-210-8094. You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy and distributed by WXXI Reach Out Radio. Browse the full archive of programs, find instructions for subscribing to the podcasts, and much more at www.eyesonsuccess.net. You can also find us on iTunes, and follow us on Facebook at Eyes on Success, or Twitter at underscore Eyes on Success. We hope you will join us again next week for more information and updates on products for accessible living. Thanks for listening to Eyes on Success and have a nice day.